Well, good morning, New City Church. Glad that you're here. Stay close in case this doesn't uh, upload here, Nate. Um, So we are in a series uh, called Enemies and Allies, um, and we have two Sundays left in the series. So today uh, we've talked about our uh, couple enemies, the devil and the flesh. Today we're going to talk about the world, um, and then we're going to wrap up the series by talking about um, all the allies. I've kind of realized almost by accident, I've spent a lot of time talking with, with you about how we're being lied to and deceived and tricked and spent very little time about the hope and the allies and the resources God's given us. So next Sunday, we hope to just uh, spend a lot of time there and talk about the allies. And then uh, after that, um, John Nemers is going to come preach at New City about the new church plant in the Engage Network, Eden Church on the north side of Des Moines. So that's February 19th, I believe. Then we'll start a brand new series in Galatians. Uh, but for now, we're, we're, we're tackling our last enemy in the uh, Enemies and Allies series, and it's the world. So I've, I've been using, this is a war uh, battle theme uh, type of sermon series. So we've been telling war stories at the beginning of all these, and I love that as a Someone who's very rapidly becoming an old man. I love war stories. So uh, this is a picture of Cologne, Germany. I actually, when I was a cameraman, worked a lot in this city. I've been in that cathedral. Um, But I wanted to show you just kind of a general picture of uh, German church in the 1930s. This is actually uh, in the middle of the war. You see the bridges there have been been demolished and and torn down. Um, One of the things that that, that the World War II did for us is it, it really made us question, how could something this bad? How could the Holocaust happen in the 20th century? How did we let, how did we let that happen? Um, and as I was reading about the, the World War II uh, this week, um, I learned a couple of things. When Hitler comes to power in Germany, there are about 65 million Germans. 45 million of those were Protestant Christians. So that's a really good percentage. Much of Germany at the time of Hitler's ascent was Protestant Christians. And so if, if, using round numbers here, there were roughly 18,000 Protestant pastors working in Germany at this time. And um, they basically divided into two factions. There was the confessing church, which this is the church that, that, that stood against Hitler. You might recognize the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He would have been one of those people. Karl Barth was another. Um, and then there was the, what was called the German church, which those, those were the pastors that went all in on Nazism and they supported the regime and they were, they, they, it, had, it had their full support. Um, so uh, Bonhoeffer and a couple others put together this declaration. It's called the Barman declaration. And uh, there's there's six principles on it. We won't go over it. But the main thing is basically they're stating um, the church should not endorse uh, any government ruler. The the, the head of the church is Jesus Christ. They were basically trying to see how many of the 18,000 pastors would sign this. So of the 18,000 pastors, 3,000 were part of the German church. So they went the exact opposite way. 3,000 were part of the confessing church, and around that number signed this declaration. And then there was this middle. 12,000 pastors weren't able to decide if that was something that they should commit to. Now, maybe they were scared because of retaliation. Maybe they they actually didn't understand the principle of it or didn't agree with the principle of it. But you have 3,000 on one extreme, 3,000 brave pastors on the other, and this huge middle chunk and so when we go back and we think about the horrors of war and we, we wonder, why did this, how could this happen? Part of it is a lesson on the evil within each one of us individually. We are capable of terrible things. But part of it is also a lesson on 
the vibe and the air that you breathe, or as the Bible calls it, the world, how powerful that is. The world at that time for Christians wasn't really anti-Hitler. There was a lot of people just in the middle. And so Martin uh, Niemöller, he was one of the people that was with Hitler initially. He was a pastor with Hitler initially, and then he changed his mind when he realized what he'd done. This is a very famous quote that came out of that time. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And that last part is true. the, The Nazis eventually came after the people in the confessing church. How did so many pastors, how did so many Christians not make a stand? Not stand up for something very obviously wrong. That wasn't the temperature of the day. The world. The world was telling them it was no emergency. So that's the enemy that we're going to talk about today. This is the enemy's tactic. We've gone back to this idea from John Mark Comer. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. And the world's part of that is that are normalized in a sinful society. So this is a little bit of a different enemy. The work of the world is to make you think that the big, bad, terrible things are actually fine and okay. And maybe even Good things. So uh, this is the the graphic we've been looking at, the three enemies and the three allies. Today we're going to talk about the world and how God has given us something uh, to counter it, which is the church, the people of God. As we look at these enemies, though, this third one is sort of of a different variety than the other two. And I want to just compare them briefly, right? So like the devil is a being, a thinking thing. He has a mind. He can make decisions, The flesh is not quite that. The flesh is the part of you that wants to sin. So the flesh is more like a disease. It's something you have. You can't get rid of it very easily. The world is a different thing altogether. As I said before, it's kind of a mood or a vibe. It's a feeling. It's stuff that we're surrounded by. It's our culture. It's norms. Things that you can't quite grasp. So this is a different kind of enemy. If you want another picture... The enemy's ultimate uh, goal is destruction, and there's maybe no better picture of that than fire. Fire just consumes and destroys. That's all it seeks to do. Well, if you are in elementary or maybe middle school science, you know, kids, that fire has three elements. You need three things in order to have the destructive force of fire. You need a spark or heat, and that comes, let's, let's for the analogy's sake, say that comes from the devil. You need uh, fuel, something to burn, right? So even those two were in trouble because here we have Satan that's lighting the spark constantly and we're just carrying a bundle of dry wood constantly. That's, that's what's happening. And oh, by the way, the third element you need is, do you remember? Oxygen. You need air. It needs to breathe. That's why you blow on that fire when it's just beginning. You, you think you're, you would blow it out at first, but actually you're, you're giving life to it. And the more life it gets, the less you need to blow on it because it's just taking in all the oxygen around it. That's the world. The world, the destructive things that are going on in your life, the habits you have, the things that you do, the world just comes in and tries to encourage more and more and more. And so if it does, if, if it's kind of the third member of this, this terrible, awful trinity, the, the work is complete when there's total destruction. So we're going to talk about this in three ways. I'm in 1 John chapter 2 today. So if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 2, if you've brought your Bible, we'll have it up on the, on the screen behind me. Um, we're going to talk about this in three ways. Number one, we're going to talk about why we love the world. Number two, we're going to talk about what's wrong with the world today. 
And three, we're going to talk about the safest place in all the world. Let's pray, and we will look at uh, 1 John chapter 2. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the morning. Thank you for the beautiful music that we were able to sing. Thank you for the kids' ministry that happened this morning and starting point. God, we're just grateful uh, to have a place to meet and to have a, a gospel to talk about and rejoice in. Lord, help us today again. We're trying to be aware of the enemy's schemes. We're, 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 we're hoping, Lord, that through your word you would illuminate how the world uh, is, is persuading us and, and, and trying to get us to, to do things that, that would not be pleasing to you. God, help us to turn to you and specifically to turn to the church that, that, that your son died for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, 1 John chapter 2, just, just a short passage. I'll read verses uh, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so let's talk about our first point. Why do we love the world? So uh, the, 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 the first thing I want to share with you is, and this is the scripture all over about this, is it's not a good thing that we do this. It's not a good thing that John has to tell us, don't love the world. Because as we see, this is, these come from the book of James, but um, James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. If you're a Christian, you might remember that. Pure religion is orphans and widows. Do you remember the third thing? And to keep oneself unstained from the world. You want a pure relationship with God? You want to really worship him and, and be in true fellowship with him? Then you will keep unstained from the world. He puts it a little more simply in chapter 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy. So let's look at our passage for today really quick. In classic John form, this is John the Apostle writing. It's a very easy outline. It starts, there's only one command in the whole verse, and it's the first sentence. I've got it highlighted here. Then he starts to talk about the world's sort of signature moves, what is characteristic of the world, and it ends with a promise. So let's look at the one command. He says, do not love the world or any of the things in the world. So he needs to command this to us because we love the things of the world. And then he goes on and he gives us, to, he sort of describes the world in these three broad categories. Now part of the work we're going to do today is, John's given us these really broad categories. We're going to add some specifics. What does the world look like today in Ankeny, Iowa, 2023? Um, but these are, the, these are the three pools that he, that when he's describing the world, the, the blowing on the fire, Come on, keep sinning, keep doing wrong. He says, these are the things that generally will do that to you. He says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So I want to just, just highlight those briefly for you here. The desire of the flesh, we sort of talked about mostly last week. If you didn't, didn't yeah, see that sermon, you can, you can watch it online. But basically, things that you naturally want, food, sex, comfort, fun, all those things, whenever you turn the dial up on one of those urges and say, I, I, I need this, I'm going to sin to get this, or this is more important than God, that's the flesh. The flesh is just the stuff you want almost physically, uh, and, and you're willing to sin to get it. So we'll, we'll skip that for now. But these other two... The desires of the eyes, that, that word can even be translated lust, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I think these will also be familiar to you. So I was trying to think of a story, uh, the desires of the eyes. Basically, I, you, you know what that means, right? 
you see something and you want it. So maybe it's less of your body and more of your mind, um, coveting, that sort of thing. So there's a story in the Bible. Uh, Moses is in the desert with the Israelites. Things are going terribly as they mostly do in the desert uh, in that story. And then in Numbers 12, Moses has two siblings, Miriam and Aaron. And in Moses 12, it says this, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he'd married, for he married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So here's Moses. You know who that is. He's always out front. He's always leading the people, talking with God on behalf of them. And he's got two siblings. And they're not unimportant. His sister's the one that followed the baby in the basket along the Nile River. You remember that story? Aaron is the first priest ever. You can see his, he's wearing that ornamental chest plate, which the priest would wear. They're important people. And yet every day they see Moses is the one that talks to God. Moses is the one who speaks for God. And he tells us what to do. He judges all of our problems. The thought occurs to them. They see it with their eyes. Did God just speak to Moses? Maybe we could be in charge. That's the example of desire of the eyes. You see something. That's not a flesh thing. That's a, geez, I wonder if I could have that. I wonder if I should force my hand a little bit. And they do, and Miriam gets leprosy, and it doesn't work out for him, right? But that's an example. When you see something in the world, and you really, boy, that would make, that would make things worth it. That would, that would be worth my while. Now let's talk about the pride of life. So on the one hand, desire of the eyes is like you don't have something and you're trying to get it. You're trying to reach out. Pride of life is you have something. You've got something good and you're looking on it and admiring it. And the best story for this is, is probably um, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. There's a story in Daniel 4 where he sort of comes out to the balcony in Babylon. And Babylon would have been spectacular to see in the day before it was destroyed. In Daniel 4, 29, it says this, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Just a king on his balcony admiring his work and his kingdom. Isn't this great? Doesn't this say something good about me? And the Bible account says <laughs> the words weren't even out of his mouth and God turns him into essentially a wild animal, turns him into a cow. He loses his mind and he has to eat the grass of the field. I showed this a bunch when we were in the Daniel series and, and some people said like, stop showing that picture, it's disturbing. I, can't, I love this picture, I can't quit this picture, this painting. So I'm showing it again. This is what happens when you have the pride of life, right? The king is out, he just loves all of the stuff that he has and God says, nope. None of that's yours, and I'm taking it away eventually. So, the, so the, the, those give you some pictures. We have the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, and then the pride of life. These are the things that are trying to pull us away, in, pull us away from God and into the world. So here's, here's the main idea from, from, from our first point. We love the world. We really do. I'll get off that one. We love the world. We love the things that we covet, the things that we see and we want. We love those things. We adore them. We, we think about them often. We also love the things that we have apart from God, our accomplishments, our resources. We, sometimes we take a, a, an account of them and we love them and cherish them. So we are both at the same time, we're selfish and we're self-made. And we love both of those things. Those are, those are, that's our glory. So let's go to number two. What's wrong with the world today? So we have to be careful here. As I'm, as I'm thinking about these enemies, I'm thinking, for most of us, 
your, your battle with the devil is probably something you almost never think about anyways. That's the one we often forget, at least in our time and culture. Your battle with the flesh is maybe more real to you. You can relate when Paul says, I don't do the thing that I want to do. That's, we feel that. But when we talk about the world and how that's um, making things worse for everyone, this is when we kind of shift modes. And I feel like most of us almost become experts or we think we're experts. Like if I ask you what's wrong with the world today, I bet you'd have some answers. And I bet it would not be things that the world is tricking you, but things that you can see in other people, like the world's just got them, got them uh, by the neck. They need to get free. They need to learn what, what I have learned. So there's a real danger. Like, I, I don't want to be the stereotype of the pastor who's like, and now for the next 20 minutes, it's what Pastor Adam thinks is what's wrong with the world, right? We have to be careful when we talk about this. So here's what I've done. The, the, what John's given us these three really vague pools, and I think it's the work of my work and the work of the church to, to put some definition on that. What does that mean? Uh, desire of the eyes. What does that mean now in Ankeny or Polk City or Des Moines or wherever you're coming from? What does that mean? But I have to be careful. This, isn't, this can't be just things that I think is wrong with the six things that are just bugging me and y'all need to get better at them. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to think of things that, that, that I can see very obviously and I can maybe, maybe aren't a part of my life. But then I've also tried to think, how is the world deceiving me, me personally? What are some invisible ways in which the world just blowing on that fire? So that's what we're going, that's what we're going to do today. So we live in Ankeny, Iowa, most of us. If you're, if you're from Polk City, though, the, the cultural jump isn't so big. You'll be able to keep up. Um, so we, 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 live, we live in Ankeny, Iowa, okay? This is our time and place. I don't know why God ordained it, that you would be alive in this place right now. So, so here, I've prayed about this as best as I can do. This is what I see. This is what I see specifically in our time and, and, and age, what's going on in the world that would fan the flames of sin. So um, the first one is, uh, I believe that we are in the era of consumerism. I think our generation, our time right now, specifically is going to struggle with consumerism. And the slogan for the era of consumerism is add it to the cart. You can always add it to the cart. So um, an example of this, though, well, that's, that's actually the example. Think of how much consuming you do. Think of how much purchasing you do. Does anybody ever just get, you know, groceries once a week and you go buy clothes in August back to school clothes shopping? <laughs> no, you guys don't do that. You shop every day. We, we, we have the option to shop every day. You can always be consuming. There's always something you can get right now. This would baffle people 100 years ago. Right now, as you're sitting in church, you can, you can buy a shirt. Go ahead, do it. No, don't do it. I'm, I, if you need it, do it. But, but do it after the sermon, right? This is, we're in an era where we can just... It could be endless. We could endless, as long as we can pay for it. And even then, even then, maybe not, right? What, what consumerism does, though, the sin that it conceals is greed. So if we're all consuming a lot, then nobody looks greedy. Uh, we, we're, all, we're all kind of normal. This is the world. This is the temperature that we're, we're living in. And, here, and here's the lie. I'm not greedy. In fact, what I get is necessary, and I would call it modest, I know other people who suffer from greed, but what I'm getting is mostly just, just bread and butter, skin and bones, ba basic needs for my family. So here's the obvious thing. We can, we can look 
in our culture and see consumerism. And I would say at the high end, it's, it's ugly and gross. The amount of resources that the top, let's call it 1% of people in the United States of America, that they spend on themselves, lavish things, it's embarrassing. It's gross, right? Now, what's the invisible consumerism that the world is, has maybe blinded us to? This is the 2008 Chevy Cobalt. That's, that's the car I drive. It's a gold version. Mine is blue with a custom hood. Um, <laughs> and here I think, here I think, boy, I'm some saint driving this cheap college car, right? You know, um, here, here's, here's what I learned. Did you know, so if you were to be in the top 1% of earners in the United States, you'd need to make like $800,000, I believe was approximately the number. Do you know what it would take for you to be in the top 1%, not 10, 1% in the world of, of all earners? $33,000. If you make $33,000, you are living in one of the richest countries in all of history, and you are in the top 1% of earners. Now, I don't think that when I'm cruising down Ankeny Boulevard in my Chevy Cobalt. What do I think? This is modesty at its peak, right? But actually, that's just the world I'm living in. That's just the environment. We're all kind of in this little bubble where we don't really know what a lot is. This is the beauty of missions trips. You go on a missions trip, we're, 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 we're going to send off our Peru team next week on a missions trip. You go on a missions trip and you're like, oh, that kid lives in a box and his only uh, toy is that stick that he has, right? That's the, it's the wake-up call like, oh, oh, geez. Then you go back to your Amazon purchases and you're like, I might be uh, falling for the lie of consumerism, right? So there's visible and invisible. Um, C.S. Lewis put this in his screw tape letters, and I think this is really good. He's talking about prosperity, and if there's a, a prosperous place, it's Ankeny. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it's finding his place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. I think that's our era. I think we're living in an era of consumerism and we sometimes blind to it and it, it disguises our greed. All right, next one. I believe that we live in an era of tolerance. If there is a word to kind of define, this is maybe more at a national level, what's going on in the United States, but we would, we would see this and feel this in Ankeny, Iowa today. I think we, we're, we're in an era of, of, uh, where tolerance is one of the biggest virtues that you can have. And there's examples of this I probably don't even need to, to give to you. On, on the, maybe the one that you think of right away is um, gender identity and transgenderism. Basically, whatever you decide is real in your life, we, need to, we all need to tolerate that, that decision. But tolerance is even wider than that. Even how we raise our kids, how much do you tolerate? Um, about what kind of behavior do you tolerate from your children? So you can see that all over. Tolerance conceals all kinds of sin. There's not just a sin that tolerance conceals. Tolerance can be a good thing. It's not, it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It depends on how you, how you use it. But if, you, if we tolerate all kinds of things, then all kinds of things are permissible. Whatever it is that, that, that suits you is permissible, potentially in this era, plus or minus a couple taboos. So uh, here's the lie of tolerance. In our, in our day and age, see if you recognize this. We say, no one has the right to judge me. 
Nobody has the right to tell me what I'm doing is wrong or what I believe is wrong. And in fact, judging itself is wrong. That's the lie of tolerance. And that's, you, you, you feel that, right? You sense that in our environment. So what's the, what's the visible version of this? Um, <laughs> have you guys heard of furries, people who identify as animals? Um, this is both the, the, one of the funnier pictures in my Google image search and one of the sadder pictures in my Google image search. This is, this is our day. This, our day, it's, this is not, this is the extreme. I'm not saying this characterizes our day. But in our day, you can do this. You can say, I'm a dog. And there will be some people who, because of tolerance, will, will grant that to you. You can change your gender if you want to, right? And we see that at the extreme level, the things, even, even being taught to, to kids, um, it's really disturbing, and it's, 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 it's wrong. It seems like it would be wrong. You wouldn't even need the Bible to see that that's wrong, um, but, but, it, but, it, but it, it is wrong in the Bible. It's very clear. Um, some of the things that, that we would tolerate today, the Bible would say, are just outright lies or sins or deceptions. I think many of you, though, know that, and, and I, this is where I want to be careful. I feel like there's a version of this sermon where I could talk about that for 20 minutes, right? And like, this is what's wrong. People need to wake up. People need to, to, to learn about um, how dangerous this tolerance is. But let me ask you, maybe this is invisible to people living in Ankeny in, in this day and age. So just, a, I got a phone with a streaming service on it, right? It could be, any, it could be anything. Um, let me ask you, what, how, what kind of language do you tolerate in your house? If the family's watching a movie, if you're watching a movie with friends, what would it take for you to turn that off? Would you say there that you're actually, you actually have a high level of what we would call tolerance, right? How much you allow, how much bad stuff you allow to be ingested, or even just on the radio. If a song comes on, you liked it when you were younger, ah, it's, the message isn't great. What's your tolerance level for that? I would say we might wag our finger at, at people who are on the extreme ends of this, but I would say we're a very tolerant people when it comes to the things that we consume. Uh, almost anything goes. Here, uh, what, what, what's your tolerance level for the kind of visuals that you, that you allow yourself to see or you, that you allow your kids to see? Would it be high? And why is that? Is it because everyone else is doing it? This, this is what I mean. This is the world. This is the environment that we're in. How about even um, where, you, where you spend your money? So we're consumers, and we're among the richest in the world, right? Um, if, uh, I, I mentioned it about, about your phone or whatever. Um, I was just doing some research today, uh, or not today, this week. Do you know, so most of us would have this. Most of us would have a smartphone. Probably a great majority would have an Apple iPhone. Here's my question. Um, what is your tolerance for poor business practices in the things that you buy. <laughs> this would be a bigger purchase in the Beecher house, right? And my question is, most of us have these. Do you know if there were any kids that were mining the cobalt that went into your battery? Do you know if they're, if they're paying their, their, the people who are working for them good wages? Apple famously has had problems for a decade where at their Foxconn factories, there's netting on the outside of these, these five-story buildings so that they can prevent the people who are working there from committing suicide successfully, right? Now, again, I could go on and on about this too, and, and maybe there's a culture where people will hear that and they'll know that information. I don't think we're living in that culture. I think we just as soon not know because we have a high tolerance for that kind of sin. And that's just as unambiguous in the Bible. Pay the workman his wages. Pay him what he's due. It's in the Proverbs. It's, it's on the mouth of Jesus. You need to give people what they've earned. Are we tolerating 
company's not doing that because everyone, what am I going to do? Think of your, if this is convicting you at all, what is your, what are the gymnastics your mind is doing right now? Well, maybe so, but I can't not have the iPhone. (laughs) What would I, what are you kidding me? I can't. This is, this is the world, though. That's the world speaking. That's the world counteracting what I've just said. What do you, what do, you do about it? I'm going to leave that, I'm going to leave that to you. But there's, there's tolerance we can see, and there's tolerance that's a little bit invisible to us. Here's a third one. I think we live in uh, the era of independence. I think independence is highly valued in our culture, and in, again, independence can be good. The slogan is, is be yourself. Independence is really good at... Um, concealing pride. Um, this is the self-made idea. This is the pride of life idea, right? And we, we uh, in this time and age, have more uh, access to independence than anybody else would. You don't need to leave your house for nothing. <laughs> you can work from there. You can order food from there. You can order supplies from there. You can be a man or woman totally unto yourself. Here's the lie of this. We, be- we all believe we're Americans. This is deep. This runs deep in us. We all believe that we're sort of each our own kings and queens of our own kingdom. And we believe that we were born with that right and that it is due to us. That we are, we are first and foremost individuals unto ourselves. So what's the visible, what's the visible um, lie there? I actually couldn't think of one. Independence is so highly valued in our culture, we would never see it as, a, as defective. Think of the most radically independent person you can possibly think of. He lives on 60 acres and he never talks to anybody and he's self-sufficient and he just orders stuff. And he, we, we would say that guy has no, there's nothing amoral about him. We'd say he's just an odd duck, right? But we don't see independence as, as a weakness. How is it invisible though? Well, if you're unto yourself, if you don't really need anything, then the church, God's church, God's people, is call it a, a luxury or an add-on in your life. It's not necessary. Put it in the shopping cart with you. If, if, if you choose that the things of church are beneficial to you, then you'll add them. You'll add them to the cart. If not, you get to say, and you, and you, don't, need, you don't need the church at all. And what this does is, uh, uh, if the church isn't necessary to you, if it's not a, a, an important part of your life, then you're just going to collectively get all the other things that you need from a bunch of different sources. So like if I asked you, where do you get truth and wisdom in your life? Like who's telling you what's right and wrong in your life? Who are you listening to when it comes to the truth? Some of you might say the church. The church is one of those leading voices. But then you'd also say, and the books I'm reading and the podcasts I'm listening to and the people I'm following, my array of friends, some of which are, are not Christians, my therapist, my financial advisor, none of those are bad. None of those are bad, you hear me? But if you're just totally independent, then you're, sort, you're almost like a project manager and you're just hiring out contract workers. I need a little bit of this church, but I'm going to go over here for my wisdom. I'm going to go over here for my good works, right? Or maybe another way we could put it, you're the king and we're all advisors. We all come to you. The Bible has a different picture. It says we need each other. We need the church. Uh, number four, the era of distraction. Oh, no, I skipped one. The era of criticism. I only have five, so there's two left. The era of criticism. Uh, the slogan here is make your voice heard. So it's not hard to see. We live in an era where I think there's a high premium on being critical. We're all critical. Um, we're asked to be critical on social media. We're asked to give reviews. 
The thing that criticism conceals really well is hatred. You can disguise your criticism as trying to be helpful or being right and making a stand, but oftentimes it comes with a side of disdain for the other person. Um, the lie that, it, that, it, that, that we're told with criticism is something like they had it coming or I'm only, I'm only trying to help, right? When maybe deep down, we just really wanted to hammer somebody. We wanted to make our voice heard and tell them how poorly they did. So obvious example is politics, the arena of politics. I don't have to tell you, we live in a divided age. So basically what happens is, if, if somebody from the other party says something, it takes 0.5 seconds for somebody else to just pounce and to just criticize. There's very little... Okay, let me, let me process what you just said and think about that, right? We're, we're in an age where there's no time for that. If somebody doesn't believe what you believe on whatever specific issue, maybe it's not politics in general, but maybe it's a transgender thing, you would see them as an enemy and you're not hearing them. Your work is to demolish them, right? So that's very obvious and we probably partake in that to various degrees, but I'm telling you, we're all being critical, we're critical of everything. You're asked your opinion all the time. When, when, when we get together in our, in our own personal settings, almost all the stuff we talk about is critical. I just got my bathroom redone. Oh, really? How did the person do? Oh, he was terrible. Or he was good, right? We almost, sometimes hanging out is just reviews. It's just reviews of all the things. I saw this movie. What'd you think of it? Terrible. I saw this, I heard this song. It's awesome, right? We, we get into that very easily. And we, we sort of, we sort of uh, almost by default, put ourselves on this judging uh, position. And we judge um, all the things in our life. So that's a critical spirit, and I think it's invisible to us most of the time. And then finally, this is also very obvious, the era of distraction. So there's a million things we could say here. We just talked about our phones. You have a, you have a little rectangular computer in your pocket that will buzz when anything happens, right? You're, you're sitting here, you're in church, or maybe you're sitting at work. You have something that just in the middle of whatever will just go, hey, hey, I did, I did a count, I, my, my, my Sabbath, because I'm a pastor, so Sundays are different for me. Uh, my Sabbath is Mondays, so I try it for a half a day on Mondays. I try to have that be kind of my quiet time. No, don't schedule meetings, no interactions with people. And I just went back last Monday, I just picked a, a, a last Monday, I went back and I was like, how many times did my phone buzz that day and how many things did I need to be at that day? So um, if, I had, if I had just text and email, no social media whatsoever, my phone buzzed 29 times, which probably sounds actually kind of modest, but 29 times, and then, then I, had, I counted seven places where I needed to be somewhere on my Sabbath. <laughs> now you could say, that's me. You could say, shame on you, pastor. You shouldn't be checking your phone or you shouldn't be going to those things. But I'm just trying, can you relate at all? Can you relate at all how many times, just throughout your day, Oh, what? Oh, somebody put a thumbs up on the text that somebody just sent. Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I spent the effort and the, I'm glad. I, hold on just a minute. Okay. Uh, uh, Gina, thumbs, thumbs up the last text. Good. Not that you are, you don't do that too bad. Um, that's, 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 that's what we live in. And it's not just phones, right? Uh, parents of young children. How many activities could your kids be in? <laughs> Is it four billion? It's just... There's just all kinds of options. Let's, let's say you don't have any kids. How many hobbies could you take up today? Expensive, time-consuming hobbies. You could get 10, and you wouldn't run out, right? Just a constant age of distraction. Distraction conceals idolatry. It conceals laziness. 
And here's the lie of distraction. The lie of distraction is always, hey, you need, to, you need to pay attention to this. Hey, hey, the world is constantly doing this. Hey, look, hey, look. And the lie is that that's important, that you need to engage in that every time you feel the buzz, every time something comes across the screen. So what's an obvious example of this? I mean, we all know, we all know the person that's overbooked. <laughs> we all know the person in our lives that has overbooked themselves more than we have and is just running ragged and has no time for anything. And that's a very obvious one. And I've seen people, I've seen the world. It was, it's, like, it's like a movie. It's like, a, it's like I had them uh, on, the, on the edge of a cliff and I had them by the hands and then the world just, just took them away because they couldn't, they had too many other things going on. I'm a pastor, so, you know, I'll, I'll ask somebody, hey, I didn't see you in church. What, what was going on uh, this week in church or whatever? And, and then what they, what, what they recite to me is almost always coming from the world. Well, we couldn't, we couldn't make it to church because we had this basketball thing. Now, if they just said that, I would say, oh, I, val- I think church is more valuable than basketball. But what they do is they try to orient me to their world. They say, now this basketball tournament, this one, here, let me, tell, let me see if you can understand this, pastor. This was a big one. This was the all-star finals, semifinals, and we might make semi-divisionals next week, da-da-da, right? Like, what are they doing? They're Ori, I haven't bought into their world. This, is the, this dance recital is like, is, is the dance, and for this one, right? They're, they're trying to orient me to, their, to a world that I haven't bought in. I don't care about your son's basketball tournament. I barely care about my own son's basketball tournament, right? Like, I don't care. I know biblically it's not hard for me to decide. But what, what are they doing there? This is my world. This is, this is what's valuable in my world, right? So it's, it's, it's obvious with people that are overbooked, that are, that are sitting right next to us, but... It's, it's also invisible to us. This, this is all of us. How much time do you spend on the screen? How much time do you spend on your activities or your hobbies? Would you, say, would you disagree with me and say, no, no, we're living in an era of peace and quiet? None of you would say that. This era does not allow for it almost. You would have to be extremely intentional. It would take a work of God for you to not be distracted in this era. So here's the summary. Again, these have been more bad news than good, but the good news is coming. We are a consumeristic, overly tolerant, fiercely independent, critical, distracted people. The world has us exactly where it wants us. That's exactly where it wants us. Yes, keep getting distracted. Keep valuing those things. Keep chasing after them. Well, where's the safest place in all the world? Okay, so the world is terrible. <laughs> our, our age is uniquely terrible in at least those five ways, and maybe you could think of five more. This is where Jesus walks onto the scene, and it's just, it's almost like we've been holding our breath, and finally we get some oxygen in our lungs. In the beginning of John's gospel, when he's writing about what Jesus has done, and when Jesus comes onto the scene, he writes this. He was in the world. That's big news. God is in the world. He has a, he has a body. He's taken on flesh. And the world was made through him. God is here. Yet the world did not know him. So this is the first beautiful thing you need to know about Jesus. When Jesus comes onto the scene, this is his world. He made it. It was in his image. And yet he isn't like it. He's different. He would be undistracted, right? He would be different from us. It doesn't seem to have the tug on Jesus that it does on us. 
Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, by the way, the wisdom of the world is folly with God. The things that, that, that seem right and seem wise, or at least seem natural to us, Paul says, oh, that's, that's foolishness to God. And then here, here, here's the biggest breath of fresh air of all. Jesus, it's almost an aside. It's almost like he wasn't teaching theology, but it, but it was just something that came out at the end of a sentence. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the first bit of good news for us. This world stinks. It's tough living in it. And you just, if, if you just go with the flow, you're going to default to all that stuff. You are going to be distracted. You're going to buy stuff whenever you want it. You're going to listen to your flesh. You're going to be proud and self-made and you will be hollow. And Jesus says, if that seems insurmountable to you, take heart. I have overcome the world. But how did he do that? How has he overcome the world? In Ephesians 3, it says this. Paul is talking And he's talking about the great privilege God's given him of preaching the gospel, sharing the good news with the world. He says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Are you hearing the buildup? He's saying, I'm going to share with you all the things that are beautiful about God. And they've been a mystery until now. What's the mystery? Tell us, Paul, the riches of Christ. What is it? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The world you live in is foolish. It's stupid. The lies are are wrong and they'll lead you down the wrong path. Paul's saying, The mystery's been revealed in Jesus and through the church. He's going to give you wisdom. He's going to reveal the right way, the truth. And the only way that he could do that was by dying on the cross for us. That's how he established his church. By dying on the cross and taking on our sins. When we believe in Jesus, we not only have our sins forgiven. That's the beginning of the good news. We are now a part of his church, a part of his body. So what, what is the solution to this world we live in? This, this, I, I love Ankeny. It's, I'll probably be buried here. I've given my life to, to, to ministering in this city, but it's causing me to be wicked in all kinds of ways. What is God's solution? The band shell. No, I'm just kidding. It's the church. It's the church. Because naturally you live in a community where people are just gonna blow on the fire of your sin and cause your destruction. But what if, stay with me, what if there was this group of people that met and they had different objectives and ideas in mind? So so they come from a consumeristic society, but when they get together, that's, that's not the thing that holds weight in the church. It's actually sacrifice. We look to a savior who is sacrificial and then we see it in our in ourselves and in the church and we encourage it, right? What if uh, instead of uh, coming from this, this culture of tolerance, there was a place where, yes, we extend love and grace to everyone who, who, who is available to extend it to, but we also place a premium on holiness, that you don't get to just say what's right and wrong, that actually there is a judge above you and that he has asked you to live a holy life. What if instead of being fiercely independent, I can do it, don't tread on me, don't you dare tell me what to do, we actually, there was a place where we acknowledged, I need other people, I need fellowship, I need someone to keep me accountable, I need someone to sharpen me. 
What if instead of being critical, I did a Google search. What's the, ob- uh, the, the opposite of critical? What's the antonym of being critical? And it's being uh, uh, praising, being in awe of something. Do you recognize that? What if instead of just being hypercritical people living in a hypercritical culture, we came to a place where we actually worshiped? Something other than ourselves or other than the things that we have, that we would revere God in a place. And then finally, what if instead of being constantly distracted, we were in a place that at least once in a while, at least through parts of your week, encouraged solitude and prayer? What would that be like? It'd be like the church. That's what God has given you as an ally against this enemy. It's, it's the church. So we've looked at this before. The battlefield, you're against Satan, you're against, you're against all, of, all of the world which, which works for Satan. And, and the hope of, of this passage is that you're not alone in the battle. That if you choose to, if you follow Jesus, you are now a part of his body. And that means church. And if you look around, it's nothing special. We're in an elementary gym and there's these multicolor sound panels and I wouldn't have picked those colors. But like, it's not, that's not it. That, that, that doesn't matter, right? What matters is that the people of God get together and they encourage each other. And that, that in a sloppy, real life way, we're gonna do life together and we're going to grow in our holiness, in our prayer, in our sacrifice, that we might look like the Savior that we all worship and love. Doesn't that sound good to you? Don't you want to break from the distractions and the consumerism? Well, there's one safe place in the world. It's in the church. So when we, when we gather, please don't see this as, well, I'll go to church. I might gain something from it, or I might not, and if it's too cold out, whatever. That's you putting church in the shopping cart. Even, even something, here's a plug for women's bowling. <laughs> even something like women's bowling, you're like, oh, how, how trivial can a church get? Now, if we did something like that every week, I'd say, yes, we're lightweight, we've lost our way, whatever. But what are we doing even there? Men, you, you went bowling, what are we doing? We're enjoying each other. We're enjoying fellowship. We're knitting together in a community that's banding together and needs to because all the rest of the world is trying to pull us away. I'll close with with how John closes our passage. So I said there was a command at the beginning. He describes the world to us. It's us to a T. We put some specifics to it, but then he gives us a promise at the end. The world is passing away along with its desires. All that stuff on your calendar, all the stuff you buy, it will go away. It's gone and you can't take it with you. But whoever desires the will of God abides forever. That is the promise of salvation. And what we find in the church is that you can live a life that is eternal, that matters for eternity. And here's the best part. We get to do that together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. We are certainly guilty of of falling for the lies of the world. We do it all the time. We do it unknowingly and and knowingly, God. Um, But you... You've given us such a gift in Jesus, dying for us, showing us grace so that we might be forgiven, but also demonstrating how we could live a life of grace. And so God, my prayer specifically is for for our church, um, that you would bless us. We are certainly imperfect, and, and I could write a book on all the things we've done wrong. But God, you are working through this body to protect us from the world, to keep us from harm, and to sharpen one another so that we might grow in love and build up the body until that day when we are with you in eternity, God. We cannot have heaven now, but we can have something like it, which is the fellowship of the saints worshiping you together here and now. So God, that's my prayer. I pray that that would, that would be a part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.